You're listening to the Desperation Podcast, a generation in desperate pursuit of God. www.desperationonline.com. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are, and thank you for your work in our hearts this weekend. What an incredible thing that you are doing in us. Thank you that we get to be part of something amazing that you are doing in the earth. And God, I pray that you would stir our hearts, that you would quicken something inside of us, that you would speak to us, you would challenge us, make us men and women that would learn what it means to make a difference for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was 10 years old, my family moved from Malaysia to America. Malaysia is where I grew up. And uh, when I was 10, my whole family moved from Malaysia to uh, Portland, Oregon, actually. So my parents went to Bible school there. We got some Oregonians, some West Coasters. Uh, Anyway, so we lived there for about three years. My parents went to Bible school, and then we moved back to Malaysia. And then when I was about 17, it was time for me to to come back to, to the States to go to college. And I'm, I'm, there's two kids in the family, and I'm the youngest, and so it was sort of a big deal when it was time for me to leave home and fly all the way across the large Pacific Ocean and go to college, you know, maybe it was just me that was freaked out, but my parents kind of made a big deal about it, and, and we got this, they got this huge, like, I don't know, plastic-looking suitcase, and it was large enough to fit, like, all of my belongings and a small Norwegian man, but we didn't bring him along. But, and, but, and, then, and then there was sort of this great clothing drive that began where, where relatives from Canada and friends who had visited the U.S. or Europe or other places that, that was cold, all, all these people from all over began to send clothes in to help little Glenn survive the harsh winters of North America. And so, so from all around the world, from friends and family members all around the world, I got like turtlenecks and sweaters and long johns and like scarves and Russian hats and woolly earmuffs and like all this stuff. They had no idea. I was going to Oklahoma. It's not very cold in Oklahoma, you know. So anyway, I was grateful. I was prepared. And uh, I got to Oklahoma, and I survived my first few winters there. It was no big deal at all. And I was a good student in college. I went to Oral Roberts University. Yeah, ORU. Okay, and, and it was great. And everything was, was going just fine. I was a good student and all of that. And then everything kind of changed my junior year. See, my junior year was when I met Holly, who is now my wife. And uh, yeah, it, it's wonderful, really amazing. But when I first met Holly, you know, we met like outside one of the classroom buildings in between classes and, and we had a mutual friend that introduced us. When I first met her, I was struck by her sort of classic American appeal. You know, she just, she looked great. And she was probably struck by like the swirly things that were on my sweater. Because I, I got to paint the picture for you, for you to really understand this. I mean, the last time I had been in the U.S., I was wearing rayon shirts and bolo ties you know those are what was in you guys are too young to know what bolo ties are but but <laughs> but a few of you can relate to me so that was what was in the last time I had been in the states and so I, when I arrived for, for college I didn't have a car I didn't have a computer I didn't have a tv and I really didn't have much of a fashion sense at all you know in fact I once came down from my dorm room to the lobby in a pair of silk boxer shorts not knowing that boxer shorts are supposed to be worn underneath shorts. They're not like a new style of shorts. Anyway, I, true story. So when, when I first, I know, it was embarrassing. And then I realized, you know, nobody else is wearing shorts like this. It's kind of weird. Anyway, everyone's shorts are a little bit longer. Anyway, and not so silky. Anyway, <laughs> when, I first met, when I first met Holly, I, 
I mean, I, I had gold-rimmed glasses, and, I, and my hair was like so short. It was like so short that it made my ears, which are already large, but it made my ears look really huge that whenever like a gust of Oklahoma wind came, you thought I might fly off like Dumbo. I mean, I, it was, I looked bad. And I had these sweaters. I mean, again, I didn't have too much money, so I had a lot of the stuff was hand-me-downs and gifts from people and all that, but, but I, I had this sweater that had like triangles and shapes and swirls, and it was like five different colors and six different patterns. It was all mixed in. I mean, it was the kind of thing that Bill Cosby would have died to have. I mean, it was like a great sweater. Um, so when I met Holly, you know, I thought that, and she, you know, here she was, she had her hair kind of, you know, bleached blonde, and she was all tan, and I thought, she's probably like a cheerleader from California or something like that. And she probably thought I was like a sweet, nerdy, foreign guy. And the more we got to know each other and hang out with each other, I, I, came, I came to realize that she was actually a farm girl from Iowa. She grew up in Iowa. Yeah. Go Iowa. And... The more we started hanging out, she got to know that I was really a sweet, nerdy, foreign guy. So, <laughs> but anyway, we started, we started, we started dating, and, and then we broke up, and then we started dating again, and then we broke up, and then we started dating again, and then eventually we got married. But in one of the times that things were going good and we were getting serious, uh, in one of those times, it was time for me to meet her family. And I had met her parents before. Her parents were godly, you know, people, and they accepted me, and it was great. But her grandparents, that, those are the people that I was really trying to impress because um, you folks from Iowa, her grandparents, they're great people, but I don't think they'd met a Malaysian before. I don't think they'd met anyone that maybe wasn't from America. I don't think they'd met anyone who maybe wasn't German Lutheran. I mean, this was kind of like a deal. And so I was trying really hard to make sure that I impressed them. And I discovered a way... And I don't know if you're aware of this, but to, uh, for a lot of Midwestern families, playing cards is like just a really important part of family time. And, and I discovered very early into my time with them that if I was going to prove to them that I was a sharp, normal, intelligent, capable human being, I would have to win a few games of cards. So anyway, this is a crazy story, but we started playing this game called Hearts. Anybody ever played Hearts? All right. Uh, it, it, the way you play hearts is you don't want a lot of points. A lot of points is bad. It's kind of like golf, low score wins, right? So we're playing hearts, and, and the way you get points is if you win a round and you get the heart in that round, you, you, know, you get stuck with that point. But there's one card that's really bad. It's the queen of spades, and that's worth 13 points. We've got some card players in the house. Okay, well, the, what I love about the game of hearts is there's this little reverse rule that says if you get all the hearts and the queen of spades, you shoot the moon, and what happens is everybody else that you're playing with gets stuck with 26 points. So once you shoot the moon, you should not lose a game of hearts, right? Because once you shoot the moon, everybody else has an incredible, incredibly high score. You have a low score. You have zero. You should be, you should be doing good. Well, early in our game of hearts, I shot the moon. I did it. I know, I know. I was a lot more excited than you were, but thank you for that token applause. And I, was, I thought, this is great. I'm doing well. They're going to be impressed. This is, this is going to be a great visit out to the family. Well, then the next round began of the same game, and I, I got a crazy idea. I thought, I should do it again. I should try again. 
And so I tried, but I didn't get it. And I thought, that's fine. I picked up a few points. They still got 26. I thought, I'm going to try again the next round. And I tried, and I didn't get it. And then I kept, and I kept trying and trying. And honestly, guys, this is ridiculous. I tried every round after that, and I ended up getting so many points in the process that I actually lost the game. <laughs> it was terrible. Totally backfired. And they thought I was like, who is this idiot? No. Uh, but it was so, it was, it was awful because... It takes a special talent to shoot the moon and lose the game. <laughs> but I did it somehow. And I think somehow, you know, it's funny when we talk about it with the game of cards, but I think there's a mentality that we have with a lot of other things in life where we want to do something and, or we face a problem or a challenge or a situation and our immediate approach to that problem is let's do something fast, let's do a quick solution, let's go for it all, let's shoot the moon. You know, you see ads on TV that say, you can have million dollar abs in just three days by just wearing this belt for three minutes a day. Now, I remember this commercial because I thought about it, but no, I didn't. But we have all these solutions, we have all these things that we want to do, and and whatever it is that you're looking for, whether it's a certain physique or a certain goal in life, or if it's it's to get wealth, there's all these different things that that, that try to pull our attention that say, look, you can have it, and you can have it instantly, and you can have it big, and you can have it grand, and you can have it in a spectacular way. And it's kind of funny when we're talking about a game of cards, and it's mildly humorous when we talk about it with weight loss, but it's not funny at all when we're talking about that that kind of approach to changing the world or making an impact for God. Because what happens is you and I come to a conference like this or have these moments with God where we have a dramatic encounter with God and it's life-changing and we feel it so dramatically that it makes us want to say, God, I want to do something dramatic for you. I want to reach my generation. I want to change my school. I want to do this. I want to do that. And then the first week back into school and nothing's different and you start to feel discouraged. Or you're a few months into your new job and not everybody at your workplace is saved and you start to feel discouraged. Or your first missions trip and nobody got healed. Or maybe a few years into your marriage and it doesn't seem so dramatic or epic or amazing. And then you start to give up on it. See, I have friends that I went to college with and we used to sit around and have these great conversations about what each of us was going to do and be and accomplish for the Lord and all these great and grand dreams. And it was always great and grand. It was always something big and spectacular. And I, I have a lot of great friends from college that are, are to this day still serving God. Many of them are on this, were on the stage, have been on the stage with me this weekend. But I also have a lot of friends from college who, because it didn't quite turn out the way that they thought or that they hoped or that they wanted, they got discouraged. And maybe what's worse than the discouragement is they started to let that discouragement turn into doubt. I, I, I heard about a friend that I knew at college who was an incredible, uh, he, was, he was an incredible leader. He was part of the mission trips and he was just a great, you know, uh, uh, he would do these Bible studies and it was an, a man of God and all this stuff. And, and someone told me they ran across his MySpace and it said, uh, I don't know if I believe in God at all. How does that happen? It happens for a number of reasons. But I think one of the reasons that happens sometimes is because we've set ourselves up to expect that something dramatic and spectacular is going to happen and it's going to happen now and then when it doesn't happen and when your life 
looks more ordinary than you thought it was going to look, or you ended up having to go to college, actually, and like take classes and stuff, or get a real job, and you're thinking, wait, what? No, I was supposed to like go to Africa and see Africa saved in a year. I was supposed to move to China, and, and everybody in, under, in the underground church was supposed to know who I, I am. I was supposed to become a, a worship leader, and everyone around the world would be singing my songs. I thought I was supposed to go to a church, and my youth group would grow to a thousand. And then when it doesn't happen, we start to say, oh, wait a second. I don't know. Maybe, maybe prayer doesn't work. Maybe God's not real. Maybe my faith was just all emotion. Maybe none of it was, was, was true to begin with. And I think sometimes we, when we feel discouraged like that, we think about, we open up the pages of Scripture and we open our Bibles and we think about the Bible heroes and instead of that being encouraging, it sometimes can be more discouraging because you think about a person like David and someone who killed a giant and someone who fought these great battles and was this man of God. And then you think, gosh, I'm not a, I'm not a warrior. I don't really have a lot of courage. I'm kind of afraid of the rat that's in the basement, you know, like, I, I don't know. I don't want to go down there, you know. Or you think about Moses parting the Red Sea, leading millions of Israelite, Israelites through the wilderness, and you're thinking... I don't know, parting the Red Sea, I, I mean, I, I'm the guy that's like alone in the lunchroom. I'm the kid that's picked last. I'm, I, I'm afraid of, you know, crowds at all. I don't know about parting anything, you know. Oh, and, and we go through these different Bible heroes and sometimes we feel like, ah, I, I don't measure up to that. I'm not extraordinary. I guess I can't make a difference. I guess I can't matter. But what I want to tell you today is that the truth of it is, God has been using ordinary people to do extraordinary things for a long time. And the way that we go about being useful in His hands, and the way that we go about being used by Him, is not necessarily the way that you, you might have been thinking. It doesn't always happen in the way that you thought it would unfold. That's why I love Nehemiah. That's why I love the book of Nehemiah, because... Nehemiah was this guy, he started out as a cupbearer to a king, he would taste the king's wine before he brought it to the king, I'll tell you a little bit more about that soon. But the high point in his life was he was a contractor essentially, he built a wall around the city of Jerusalem. And, and as far as we know about Nehemiah, he didn't do any miracles, he didn't prophesy, he didn't fight in any battles. And yet somehow Nehemiah was part of the greatest story of all time. How is that possible? Could it be that in the ordinary moments of your life, at your schools, at your work, in your families, with your friendships, in your church, in your town, could it be that your life can make an incredible difference for the kingdom of God in an unspectacular sort of way? I want to give you three lessons today from Nehemiah's life. And I want to tell you some stories from history that kind of um, reinforce some of these points. A little background on the book of Nehemiah, okay? You all remember King David, right? He has a son named Solomon. Solomon has two boys. He has more than that, but these two sons eventually split the nation of Israel. And one, the one in the north is called Israel. The one in the south is called Judah. The rest of the Old Testament traces the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, and some are good and some are bad, and some listen to God and some disobey God, and there's prophets that come and encourage them and rebuke them and all that stuff. That's the bulk of the rest of the Old Testament, okay? You still have to read it, but I'm just giving you the bird's eye view. 
And then eventually, the nation, the nation of Israel, the one in the north, God has enough of their wickedness, and they get carried away by the Assyrians. They get scattered all over the ancient world. And then Judah gets carried away a couple hundred years later by the Babylonians. And then the Babylonians get overtaken by the Persians. Anyway, by the time we open the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is an Israelite living in a city that's the capital city of Persia. It's a city that he hasn't, it's not home for him. But yet home, Jerusalem, is a city that he's never seen. Okay, it's like, it's totally foreign. He's never seen it. He's heard tons about it. That's his home. But he's found himself surrounded by people that are not like him, that don't believe in his God. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, some, some of his own friends and brothers have just come back from visiting Jerusalem. It's the first time in a long time. And so he's curious about it. He's asking them, all right, so what's the deal? What's it look like? Is it bad? What's the city like? I haven't ever been there. I've heard stories. And now you're actually telling me you, you were just there? What's it like? What does it look like in Jerusalem? And they come back and they say, Nehemiah, you won't believe it. It's terrible. It's a mess. The walls are burned down. The gates are, are, are broken down. It's just trash and rubble and ruins everywhere. And Nehemiah's in such shock, he starts crying. He starts weeping. The Bible says he wept for days. He wouldn't even eat. He was just full of sorrow. I think the closest thing we, we can, we have to relate to this just a little bit, I think, is how we felt when we looked at those TV screen images of New York City on September 11th, a few years ago. Just shock, like, really? What? That happened in our country? That's a little tiny piece of what Nehemiah probably felt hearing this news for the first time. And I think it, it, he's very much like you and I. We, he's moved with this burden. Okay, a lot of us in this room, we, as you sat here this weekend, you thought, yeah, you know what? I can think of things in my school. I can think, think of things in my youth group that I want to change, that I want to start, that I want to be part of. And you're moved with this burden. You think, I have friends that are addicted to drugs. I have friends that are ruining their lives in, in wrong relationships. I have friends that are involved in cutting and all this stuff. And I want to help them. I want to rescue them. And you're moved with an incredible burden. But the how or the what next or the what do we do is what I think we can gain from Nehemiah's life. Because at least a few months passed between chapter 1 and chapter 2 in the book of Nehemiah. And when we open the book of Nehemiah to chapter 2... Here's where we'll pick up the story, all right? And I'll give you point number one from here. Nehemiah chapter two. Let me quickly turn there. Early the following spring in the month of Nisan, which is also a car that I drive, but that's... Not. During the 20th, 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine, and I had never before appeared sad in his presence. And so the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be troubled. And then I was terrified, but I replied, long live the king, but how could I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king says the magical words. He says, what can I do to help you? Nehemiah goes on. He says, okay, okay, this is it. Oh my gosh. He asked me what, what, what he can do. Here's what you can do. Give me time off. Give me safe passage to go back to Jerusalem. Give me all the wood that I'm going to need to rebuild the walls around the city. And not just that, the temple... And not just that, give me enough wood to build myself a house. <laughs> so the old boy started to get a little bold, okay? He started to get some confidence now. And he decided to ask for all of it. Almost, almost too much. Almost like, ooh, Nehemiah, don't you think you're, you know, give an inch, take a mile. What are you doing? 
But you know what the king says to him? In short, yes to everything you've asked for. Yes. Now, I'm not an expert in ancient history, but it doesn't seem to make much sense to me for a Persian king to let this Jewish guy go back to his home city and rebuild it. Doesn't make any sense to him. Back in those days, everybody, it was all about whose empire was the most dominant, and it was about them remaining in control. Why would he let one of his subjects return to his own city and rebuild? That doesn't make any sense. Except for one principle that is true in the kingdom of God, and that is, if you are faithful, it will lead to favor. And so the first lesson that we learn from Nehemiah is this. Do small things well. Write this down. Do small things well. I'll tell you where we find it. Right there at the end of verse 1, Nehemiah says, I had never before appeared sad in the king's presence. And so he asked me, what's the matter? Now, I have a great job. I love my job. But there are many days that I come to work and I don't look happy, believe it or not. And you may be thinking about, yeah, yeah, I don't, I, there are lots of days I go to school and I don't look happy. You know, I'm not, you know, whatever. I, or I, I show up for stuff all the time and I'm not ready to serve and excited and joyful. I think with Nehemiah what we see is he had this practice of believing that the thing that he's, his hands had found to do, he was going to do that well. And because he served the king so well and so faithfully, even though it may not have been the most significant thing. Now, some of you are, are, are thinking, now wait a second, Glenn. I was just reading the other day on ancient cupbearers, and I could tell you that a cupbearer was a royal position. And he, he was in the court of the king. And I say to you, true. However, a cupbearer also had to taste the king's wine before the king drank it in case somebody tried to put a little poison in the king's wine. I suggest Nehemiah got his position as cupbearer because someone else had vacated the position, if you know what I'm saying. So even though it had its perks, this was a job of tremendous risk. You know, you think you have a bad day at school, you, you got a C on a quiz or whatever. Nehemiah has a bad day, he's dead, okay? So talk about being under stress. And yet this guy decided, I'm going to serve this king faithfully. I'm going to do this to the best I can. I'm not even going to look sad in his presence. And it, because he was faithful, it led to favor that opened the doors to everything that he wanted to do. Listen, in a way, Nehemiah was in a position that a lot of you in this room are in, in that you're in a bit of a holding pattern. You have these burdens, you have these desires, you have these dreams, you have this vision. And you say, God, I want to do, do that. I want to change that. I want to be part of something like that. But I'm stuck here. Several months had passed between chapter 1 and chapter 2. I told you that. He had the burden. It wasn't until the next year that he spoke to the king about it. Yet even between that time and this time, he didn't appear sad. Really? Wow. I think sometimes we don't believe that small things can make a difference or we don't, think the sm we don't believe in doing small things well because we keep waiting for the someday or the spectacular, you know, the, the somewhere out there. God is only going to bless me when I graduate from the New Life School of Worship. 
or God is only going to bless me once I have my degree, or once I do, then God can use me, or if only I was part of a band that could travel the world, then I'll be doing something important for God. God can't be involved in this. See, there's something that you have to know at a young age, and that is that God is on the scene of your life, in every scene of your life. In a way, there's no such thing as an ordinary versus extraordinary because God's in it all. And if you allow him to be there, it's all divine because God is there. I think sometimes we don't believe in doing small things well because we don't know the whole story. We don't see what else is going on. And all we see is like our little thing and our school and our, our work, or our family, our situation. It's just like this, tunnel vision. On April 5th, 1912, a steamship ship left London bound for New York. Nine days into the voyage, they ran into an ice field. And they decided to stop. The ship was called the Californian. They decided to stop. They thought, this is a little dangerous. We better just stay here. Around midnight, they saw another ship in the same ice field as them. And they thought, oh, maybe we should try to make contact with them, warn them that they're in an ice, maybe they don't know that they're in an ice field. I mean, we've stopped. Maybe they ought to stop too. They try to use their, their Morse lamp to get in contact with, the, with this other ship. There's no response. Over the next 90 minutes, they see five explosions of bright white light come from this other ship. Just poof, 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 like rockets in the sky. And they're thinking, oh my gosh, what is this? What's going on? The guys on the Californian who saw that went back to their captains, wake up, captain, there's this other ship, there's five explosions, we we don't know what it means. He says, well, is it that ship's signal or something? They're like, we don't know. He says, well, try to use the Morse lamp. They said, we did. He said, try again. They said, okay. They go out, they try with their Morse lamp to get in contact with this other ship. No response. Around two in the morning, the lights from this other ship start disappearing in the horizon. They think, okay, the ship's leaving. Okay, well, maybe everything's okay. Four hours later, the radio operator on board the Californian woke up at six in the morning, made first radio contact, and found out that the Titanic had sunk overnight. Okay. Now, sorry, thank you, Andrew. That was, that was lovely. Appreciate that. That was Andrew's idea. Andrew Makinson, everybody. Found out that the Titanic had sunk overnight. Now, Get this, okay, get this. The Californian was only nine miles away from the Titanic. The Californian had enough room to carry, you know, maybe a hundred passengers, maybe more on lifeboats. That day on that voyage, all they had was about 50 people on board. They had room to save 50, maybe 100, maybe 150 of the people that were freezing in the waters that night. They could have saved Jack and Rose. (laughs) And you're thinking, wait a minute, so why? Why didn't they do it? Why didn't they try harder? Wait, Glenn, you said there was a radio guy on board the Californian, right? That's how he found out the news, right? You said there was a radio guy. Well, they tried the lamp, but why didn't they try radio? Oh, they did. See, at 11 o'clock that night, the radio guy was actually the first one to spot the Titanic. And he made radio contact with the Titanic. But they were such, they were so close together that the radio operator and the Titanic 
he heard this guy's voice so loudly in his ears. He said, dude, knock it off. You're, you're yelling. Just stop. I don't have time to talk to you. And so the radio guy on the Californian, his name was Cyril Evans. He said, okay, fine, whatever. He was about 20 years old, 20-something years old. And with that, Cyril Evans went to bed that night. Now, what if Cyril Evans did his job, just say, a little bit better? Let's say a couple hours, he, he decided, okay, all right, I learned my lesson. I guess my voice comes across really loud. I guess I have a loud voice. It really projects. Or we're so close to God. Maybe, maybe I'll call him back in a couple hours and say, hey, just checking back in with you. Beep, beep, you know, whatever the, the radio thing was in, the, in those days. Just checking back with you. You know you're in an ice field, right? Good? Okay, good. Fine. What if you'd just done that? Maybe, that, maybe it would have ended differently. What if he had been awake? See, the Titanic radio operator had been trying to get a hold of him during those midnight hours. But he was asleep. The only reason you know his name today, the only reason I'm telling you his name, is because he didn't try a second time to do his small little job just a little bit better. There was a security guard named Frank Wills. He was 24 years old. He was working in a building, and late at night, he was making his nightly rounds, just checking the building, doing his job. He came across this door that had a little piece of tape on the door, you know, just to tape the latch shut, just tape the latch in like that. And he thought, that's odd, you know, that, why would anyone do that? And then he thought, ah, you know, maybe someone was just needing to, you know, kick the door through with their feet because they had their hands full carrying files or something. I mean, this is, you know, whatever. Took the tape off and decided just to make the rest of his rounds. Well, the difference, though, is Frank Wills decided to just, before he called it a night, to go back one more time and check that door. He went back and checked that door. You know what he found? Another piece of tape. He thought, wait a second, something's not right. This is not right. And so he, he knew whoever's doing this is up to no good and they're still in the building. He calls the cops. An unmarked police car pulls up right outside the building. They arrest five bur burglars that were in that building. It became international news within hours and within two years the President of the United States resigned under a cloud of accusation and threats of impeachment. Nixon, who was not a crook. You see, the building that Frank Wills worked in was the Watergate building in Washington, D.C. It was the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee None of that may mean anything to you except this. This security guard in his 20s, because he made a second round, changed the course of American history. Now, does every small thing you do lead to something tremendous like that? Probably not, but maybe. But the point is this. There is more to the story than you know. You and I don't have the luxury of seeing our lives from the perspective that God does. All we see is the individual moments, the individual relationships, the little conversations, the secret moments that you steal away to pray for your friends, the time you take to encourage the person who's left out on their own in the lunchroom, the time that you take to say, you know what, I'm going to just stay back a little longer and I'm going to talk with so-and-so or I'm going to pray for so-and-so or I'm going to go early to my youth group or I'm going to go on this mission trip or I'm going to, those little, little things that you do that you don't see the rest of the story to. You get me? Those guys had no idea what they were part of. But they didn't see the whole story. The second lesson we get from Nehemiah is 
found in chapter 2, later in chapter 2. He rides into Jerusalem. He finally goes. He gets the permission from the king. He finally goes. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and he, late at night and he starts inspecting the stuff and he's like, man, what a mess. This is terrible. And then he gives, he calls all the leaders together. There's some people that have just started to return and that are living there. He calls these people to himself. And he says, okay, guys, come on, huddle up, huddle up. We've got to make the plan. And he gives what I imagine to be like a Braveheart type of speech, you know, like, okay, guys, look, here is the condition. Here's all the favor that I've got from the king in Persia, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to rebuild this wall. We're going to restore the glory to Jerusalem. We're going to do this. And they're like, yeah, you know, maybe not with face paint, but they're screaming, you know, they're, they're pumped about it. And then Nehemiah essentially, figuratively speaking, starts handing out tool belts he starts telling people what they're going to do. Okay, now great. You're in. Okay, now, now Bob, it would have been Bob if it was today, but Bob, you're going to build this section of the wall. You and your family, you got it? You got three boys and two girls and your, your grandpa. Okay, you're all going to take this section of the wall. All right, Joe, Joe, all right, here's what I want you to take this gate right here. You got your brothers, Joe? Okay, and your, okay, and your mom's cousin too? Okay, good. All of you, you're going to take this gate right here, Joe. And, and he starts calling all of them and he gives them each a section of the wall to own. Now, I think if I had been in that setting and heard this amazing speech by Nehemiah and then, you know, starts handing out tool belts and hammers and here's a, here's a saw for you, here's a whatever, you know, here's some nails. I would have said, well, Nehemiah, hang on a second, bro. Take it easy. Time out, bro. Listen, I just want to be clear. I said, um, I said I want to be great. I didn't say I want to build a gate. I mean, I, I don't know if, like, you know, there's the dust in your ears, but I, I don't get this construction thing, bro. I, I, I signed up to bring the glory of God back to Israel. So, so what's with the construction equipment, you know? But those people, thank God, were not like me. They were a lot better than that. And they said, okay, all right, we'll do it. And for the next 55 days, each family, this is incredible. Think about this, Okay. Okay, guys, no family vacation, no family reunion this summer. What we're going to do is we're going to take the whole summer, 55 days of it, and grandma, grandpa, cousins, aunts, uncles, all of us, we're going to build a portion of a wall. We thought it was, it was between this and Disney World, but we, ch we chose the wall. This, these families, they each took a section and they began to own it and they began to build it and each of them just owned one stretch of the wall. Now listen, here's lesson number two from Nehemiah. Lesson number one was do small things well. Lesson number two is this, act where you are. You see guys, I believe with all my heart that the things that God has put in our hearts must find some kind of outlet or expression or action in the places that we are right now. When I went to ORU, it's such a wonderful place, and I made so many wonderful friendships, but it was also really a, a very interesting place because I grew up, like maybe a lot of you, I grew up where a lot of, every now and then when I was a kid, I would have these adults that would come up to me and put their hands on my head and rub in real hard like that and say, Glenn, you are destined for greatness. Or you're going to do mighty things for God, young man, you know, and all this stuff. And, and I thought, oh, yes, yes, I'm going to do mighty things for God and all this stuff, right? Now that I'm a little bit older, I understand that that's just like an adult way of encouraging you, you know. 
But when I got to ORU, what I realized is there was 4,000 other students that had been raised on those same words. So it was like the X-Men school for the talented and gifted. I mean, this was like, this was like the place to be if you were destined for greatness. This was like the place that you were supposed to be if you were going to be a mighty man or woman of God. I mean, it was like, you know. So what happened, though, is you would find these people and, and, you know, you, you talk to them and say, hi, my name is um, Peter. Hey, Peter, how's it going? Oh, good. You know, by the way, the Lord has called me to be a megachurch pastor, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that one day, and it's going to be amazing. I'm going to have tens of thousands of people. I'll probably be on the cover of Charisma someday. Anyway, would you like to work for me? In fact, you probably better be good to me because someday I might consider hiring you. <laughs> and not really. I'm exaggerating. But I, I, had, I, I met so many people who talked about the things that were going to happen in their life as if it was automatic, as if all they had to do was just sort of say, hey man, I got the prophecies, all I got to do is wait. I got the words of God spoken into me, I don't got to do nothing. I, I, you know what, I think it's probably going to work like once I graduate, like God will be like, dude, a degree in theology? No way. Here's a mega church for you. First of all, God's not a California surfer, but nor is he Keanu Reeves. But, <laughs> but secondly, I don't think it works that way because it's not as if we can sort of store up the stuff in us and wait and store up greatness and store up greatness and then all of a sudden one day, <laughs> unleash it on the world, you know? <laughs> yes. You can't do that. I had so many friends who were theology majors and they were studying to be in ministry and all this stuff, and yet they wouldn't even serve at a local church. They wouldn't even go to church, some of them. I was thinking, how does that make sense? You're studying to be, let me get this straight, you're studying to be a pastor, but you don't want to go to church. Hmm. I think God loves that. <laughs> Tell me how that works out. You can't have this mentality of waiting for greatness, waiting for something spectacular, waiting for the someday, maybe when I'm married, maybe when I have a real job, maybe when I have a car that is in the same decade as the year that I live in, you know, maybe, maybe when I do this, maybe when I pay off debt, maybe when I, maybe when I, maybe when this happens, maybe when that happens. I'm not saying everybody needs to up and leave and do the, the ultimate thing that's in their heart right now. I'm not saying that. Because there is a time and a place for everything. There are seasons and all that. I get that. What I am saying is there must be something about what God has put inside of you that has to be acted on right here. So you want to be an evangelist. Well, are you sharing Christ with the people you know? No? Oh, you think God will let you be an evangelist only when there's thousands of people listening to you, but not when there's two? Really? No? Billy Graham is obviously the undisputed uh, evangelist of our lifetime. Yet in every season of Billy Graham's life, he was always preaching, always preaching. Preached on a street corner, preached at a mission downtown. He was always involved in that while he was in college, when he was out of college, always looking for those moments to talk about Jesus, talk about the gospel to somebody. It wasn't like someday God was like, Billy, you just turned 33. I think I'm going to give you a worldwide ministry now. There has to be something in us that says, act where you are. How can I act on this now? Okay, 
I'm 16, but I want to be, uh, uh, I, I want to somehow, you know, be involved in, in, in leading people in worship. Maybe I should take guitar lessons. Maybe I should, you know, do something. Act on it. Act where you are with it. Because those things, that's how momentum builds. That's how God's work in our life starts to develop. In Mark, in Mark uh, 5, there's a story of this madman that comes to Jesus and, you know, he's crazy. He's like running around the graveyards and he's got stones and he's cutting himself and he's got long hair and he's just, he's crazy, he's mad. And Jesus casts the demons out of him. He becomes normal. All of a sudden he looks better, his clothes are clean. Everyone recognizes this guy is different. At the end of that story, it says that as Jesus was getting in the boat about to leave, the man came up to Jesus, persuading Jesus to let him go with him. I imagine the madman could have said something like this, Jesus, Jesus, I have a great idea. You've changed my life. This is amazing. Let's take this show on the road. I'll be your opening act. I'll tell stories. I'll tell like the thing about what you did to me. I could even reenact it, you know, like the crazy thing and then like how you healed me and, I, and, and we, I'll travel with you and I'll do this and it'll be amazing. You know what Jesus says to him? He says, go home to your people and tell them your story. I think what God wants to say to each of us here at Desperation is, yeah, you've had an amazing encounter and there's more tonight that's still coming. But rather than saying, okay, God, what, what, what can I do that's, that's, that's dramatic and where can I go and maybe I could do this and do this, 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 this and God is, is looking us lovingly in the eyes and saying, listen, hang on, hang on, hang on. That's great and that'll come and there'll be a time for that. But you know what you can do right now, next week, tomorrow, this weekend, is you go home and tell your people your story. Who are your friends Who's in your circle of influence? Who do you know? Who listens to you? Who are the people that are around you? Who are the people that you have influence over? What can you do with them? Can you start a Bible study? Maybe. Could you, could you do something that, that helps serve a different group in your city? What, I mean, think of those things. What can you do to act on it where you are? It's not always about waiting for the mission strip. Or it's not always about waiting until you graduate. There's some measure of this that we can act on where we are. The third thing that we learn from Nehemiah is this. First is do small things well. The second is act where you are. And the third is to stay on the scene. Stay on the scene. Life is long. And we've had a couple of talks today already about how we endure and how we finish strong and how we're part of the ones that last. I think there's something incredible when you stay the course and you stay on the scene. Because friends, here's what I believe. When you stay, God stays. When you stay committed, on, on task, stay the course, then God stays. We talked, about, we talked about Billy Graham a little bit earlier, you know. Over the course of his life, he was offered multiple opportunities to start many things. He was offered all the money, or a lot of money and land to start a university. He was offered to be the host of a primetime TV show. The president approached him at one time privately and, and, and gave him 
and told him privately that he would give him all the resources and all the connections that he needed to get elected. Billy Graham could have been president. Gave him all these different things. He had, he had, a, a, he had millionaire after millionaire say, hey, why don't you even run for governor? I'll fund that or I'll give you money towards this. He had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But you know what? To every one of those, Billy Graham said, no. Nope. Nope. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach and I'm going to preach and I'm going to preach and I'm going to stay. This is my road and I'm going to stay on it. See, I think, I think your careers in life can change. That's, that's fairly fluid. I, personally, I believe that calling is what is core to who you are. Calling of, of what your life is about, that's core. And the way that it looks in terms of your careers, that may change. But there's this core thing about who you are and you stay on that course. And you stay on that scene. Because there's not a church or a city or a school or a friendship that's lost or God forsaken as long as you are there. And it may seem like things are difficult and it may seem like things are hard. But if you stay, God stays. I kind of think it's like a secret agent. You guys like secret agent movies? Anybody watch spy movies or secret agent stuff? Okay. There's, there's usually some variation of this scene in the secret agent movie where the guy's in a tuxedo, the spy's in a tuxedo, the girl's in her evening dress or whatever, and they're going in some German castle or something like that in Europe, you know, and they're going to some party. And then there's always the white van that's, you know, unmarked and that's in like the, the cobblestone alleyway that's waiting for them. And then the agents walk in with their glasses, whatever, and their, their, their little, little glasses have like cameras in them. It's like, beep, 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 beep. it's picking up everything in the room, you know, and their little flower on their shirt is like a, a microphone. And they say, oh, the camel has entered the building and, you know, and they start talking this code and the guys, and then in the van you have two groups of people typically. You have like the, the techie guys that are like, the electricity will go off in five seconds, you know, and then you have, and then you kind of have like the muscle guys in the van that are there with the guns and the missiles, and they're like, we're waiting on the queue, we're all queued up, we're ready to go, you know, so you have like the smooth operators, and then you have like the, and then you have the guys with the muscle, anyway, so at some point in the spy movie, you know, the, the agent on the inside will say something like, you know, the eagle has flown the nest, and the hawk has laid its egg, you know, and... And the guys in the van will be like, Roger, Roger, the eagle has flown the nest. You know, and then the muscle guy's like, here we go. And they knock down the van and they come in the castle like, you know, or whatever. And they rescue the person they're trying to rescue. They get the file of the diamond or whatever it is that they're trying to get, right? Okay, now, I, th I think, I think, listen, 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 listen. I think that you and I are kind of like God's agents on the inside you see god is spirit he's invisible you and i are flesh and blood we're totally visible right but every friendship everything that you're involved in you are like the agent on the inside and i think god in a way is kind of waiting in the van and saying okay you say the word you're there you're on the scene i'm with you and you say the word, and I'll bust right in. And it's kind of like this. You're saying, okay, you know, I've been talking to Jake for a while, and we're on the same football team, and, you know, Jake and I are good friends, but, 
He's never come to church, but uh, you know, Jake's kind of the, the cool kid. I don't know if I could ever bring this up. And, 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 then, and then one day you see Jake's kind of, you know, you know kind of looks like he's down, and, and you decide to talk to him. You know, Jake, what's, what's up? Oh, my parents are going through a divorce. My mom's yelling at me, whatever. And, and you're thinking, okay, maybe this is the time to say, Jake, can I pray for you? I, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't want Jake to think that I'm a nerd. Oh, I'm just going to do it. And then you say, you say, okay, okay, God, God, help me. Here I am. I'm about to go talk to Jake and ask him if I can pray for him. And, and God says, wait a second, wait a second. Did he just say, come Lord Jesus? Did he say, come Holy Spirit? Did he say, help? Did he say, Jesus, I'm on the scene and I want you to break in? Did he say that? Oh, we're going there. Boom, and he, God breaks down the door and God shows up on the scene of your relationship and this person that you're talking to. But see, we don't get the opportunity to see those things take place if we bail on stuff. If we say, ah, psh, I've been talking to Jake for three months. He totally doesn't want to come to youth group, whatever, I'm done. Okay? But what if you stayed with it? Or if you say, you know what? Frankly, we've been doing this thing at our church. We've had this, this prayer meeting, this, this Bible study thing for college kids, it's just, it's not working, I think we're going to stop now. But what if we stayed on the scene long enough to see God break into it? What if? Because Nehemiah faced his own share of obstacles, see, as he was building the wall, he got threats from people all around. They were like, Nehemiah, you're terrible, you're awful, it's not going to happen, this is going to fall down. And they kept doing all these stuff, they would insult him, they would threaten him. In chapter 6, you can read about it. They send message, messages to him, and they say, they say Nehemiah, I tell you what, we're going we're gonna to tell the king all these lies about you, and we're going to say that you're trying to undercut his authority and all this stuff, and you better come down, and you better meet with us. We need to meet with you. We'll read it. Nehemiah chapter 6. Start with verse 2. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them in one of the villages in the plain of Ono, but I realized they were plotting to harm me. Verse 3, so I replied by sending this message to them. Here it is. Here's his answer. I'm engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Now, I wonder if somebody who overheard this said, Nehemiah, a great work? Exaggerating a little, don't you think? You're building a wall. You can take time off and go meet with these guys. But he said, no. He said, no, you know what? I am doing a great work, and I believe that what I'm part of is significant, and I will not stop. You, you tell them that I am not coming down because I'm doing a great work. Yet, in his own heart, we know Nehemiah wrestled with this thing of whether or not his life mattered. Because over and over again, he prayed throughout the book of Nehemiah, God, remember me, God, remember me, remember me, remember me, remember me. You almost wonder if he was thinking, if he was thinking, you know what, God, I know the legends of the people of Israel. I know the stories of all the great heroes like David and Moses and Elijah. And I know that I don't maybe compare to them. But God, please remember me. I believe I'm doing something great. I hope you think that too. Now, 500 years, about 500 years after Nehemiah first rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, another man rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
And this time the walls were high and the gates were strong and the crowds were there by the masses. And they were shouting Hosanna as Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. And I wonder if Jesus stopped as he was riding in, looked at the walls, looked at the gates, looked at all the people, and just whispered up to heaven, Nehemiah, I remember you. You were right. You were doing a great work. You see, guys, if he hadn't built the walls around Jerusalem, people couldn't have come back to live in the city. If they hadn't come back to live in the city, there would have been no Messiah, no Palm Sunday, no Calvary. Nehemiah couldn't have known it. But his little life, ordinary life, was part of the greatest story ever told. He was part of saving the world. He was part of changing the world. How? He built a wall. He might not even have known it when he died, what he was part of. And this is what I want to challenge you with today, and we'll end with this. You have no idea what you're part of. And I tell you, there's no time like now to begin learning the habits of doing small things well, acting where you are to make a difference, acting in your schools, in your families, in your churches to make a difference, and then staying the course, staying on the scene. I think when we do those things, we'll find in the end that we were part of this massive thing that God was doing. See, one of the reasons I love the Desperation Conference is because we come in uh, like tonight and we'll see thousands of people all around us. And you know what that's kind of like? That's kind of like remembering, yeah, I live in Iowa and I live in Indiana or I live in Michigan or I live in Kansas or I live in Texas and I'm building my section of the wall with my youth group in my high school in my little town. But look, there's another youth group in Oklahoma. There's another youth group in California. There's another youth group in Oregon. There's another youth group. And you realize, look, It's not just you where you are in your town, but all of us are part of a massive kingdom, a massive building project, a massive wall that we are all part of. And that if we do these things well, I believe that we'll come face to face with Jesus one day in heaven and he'll say, okay, okay guys, okay desperation 2007, do you want to see what you were part of? Let me pull back the curtain a little bit and show you. See, you thought you were just being nice to the new girl at school. Or you thought you were just, you know, offering to help out in youth group. You thought you were just offering to start the college Bible study. You thought you were just, but what you didn't see was all of this. Look, you were part of rescuing a generation. You were part of changing the world. You couldn't have known it, and it didn't happen by you trying to do grand things or trying to do spectacular things. It didn't happen by you trying to shoot the moon. It happened by you just being faithful with what you have, where you are in your section of the wall, and staying the course. Your legacy will be as long as your obedience. Your legacy will be as long as your obedience. Listen. I want this to be true for all of us. And I think it can be, all right? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for allowing us to be part of what you're doing in the earth. 
And God, all of us want to make a difference. God, forgive us for sometimes looking too much for the extraordinary, the spectacular thing. I pray you help us to see the things right in front of us, the people, the friendships, the relationships, the things that we can do. God, thank you that together you are weaving the story. You're, you're telling this amazing story. You're doing something incredible. Just open our eyes just a little bit even to see this so that we'll stay. In Jesus' name, amen. You've just heard one of the speakers from Desperation, a ministry of New Life Church in Colorado Springs. For more information on becoming a Desperation intern, attending one of our conferences, or joining the Desperation National Network for local churches, visit us at desperationonline.com.